Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we are the official podcast of Tennis Canada, members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And Mike, we've had such a great run of guests, and I feel like the continuation again happening this week as we have a former five-time Grand Slam champion in doubles. She was also a finalist at the French Open. Uh, Lucy Safarova joining us on the podcast this week. Yeah, we should get a lot of hits from the Czech Republic, I'm guessing, with uh, the quality of guests that we have here. And, uh, you know, there's also some Canadian tie-ins as Lucy um, was coached for quite a while and for the most successful parts of her career by uh, Canada's Rob Steckley, another previous guest of ours. And we should say thanks to Rob for hooking us up with Lucy on the podcast uh, this week because uh, that was the the big connection there for us. But it was really great to talk to her. She seemed like she was just in a, a super great space and a, and a good mood and really enjoying retirement. And, you know, it can't be that way for every player. Some players must have a really hard time letting go and transitioning. But for Lucy, given what she had to say, it sounds like it's been nothing but positive, Ben. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, look, she only retired uh, just last year in 2019. And um, you, you still think with her ability to strike the ball from the baseline that she could hang with a lot of players. I still think today she did have uh, some struggles with injury the previous year before retiring, but still just 33 years old and so much of life ahead of her. And, uh, you know, we, we covered, as uh, I think, in pretty good detail, her epic run to the French Open finals in 2015, like some big time wins. And, and fascinating that Rob Steckley was was coaching her at that time. So getting some insight in, into that angle. And of course, he was a previous guest of hers. And uh, just seeing uh, her reflection on her career was was great to, to listen to. And uh, yeah, without further ado, here's our interview with uh, Czech, former Czech player Lucy Safarova. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, and today on the podcast, we're lucky enough to be joined by Lucy Safarova. She retired from pro tennis last year after a great career that peaked at number five in the WTA rankings in singles and number one in doubles, and she captured seven singles titles, 15 in doubles, of which five of them were Grand Slams. She also made the finals in singles at the 2015 French Open and earned a bronze medal at the 2016 Rio Olympic Games and women's doubles as well. Lucy, thanks so much uh, for coming on to Matchpoint Canada with us this week. Hello. Nice. Pleasure to be joining. <laughs> Lucy, we have to start with uh, just the current state of affairs in the world. And uh, it, it must feel to you in a lot of ways like you picked the right time to retire getting out before all, all of this came to pass. Yeah, it's all really sad and um, it makes me sad to watch and uh, to see all the tennis world being uh, stopped for a while. But uh, as you said, it seems like I chose a good time. But um, yeah, I wish uh, it will continue soon and um, things go back to normal as quick as possible in the countries. Tennis is the best sport for this situation because uh, it's uh, so many people for, from all around the world. So that makes it very difficult. As we're seeing right now, there've been a few exhibition tournaments that have started up and obviously there's some uh, fallout from that with some players uh, testing positive from the Adria tour that uh, Novak Djokovic organized with COVID-19, unfortunately. And with the U.S. Open hoping to still be running later this summer, uh, how would you feel if you were still a player on the tour these days? Would you feel comfortable enough 
to leave your your bubble and and go and and play an event like that at this time it's definitely a tough decision for everyone but uh personally me i uh, I would be hoping that uh, the circumstances will, will be getting better and uh, I would be eager to play and to be on the court. So, yes, I would be happy to go and play U.S. Open. On the other hand, I understand that uh, they need to cut down all the people to as less as possible and without the fans. It's it's really – I cannot imagine to play on like a Arthur Ashe Stadium just with my coach and coach of the player opponent. So – it's uh, it's definitely not the great scenario, but uh, I think that tennis has to start somewhere, and uh, I think it's a good good start um, to try. Obviously, it's it makes it difficult if some someone is testing positive for COVID, then what they are gonna do? And there are a lot of question marks. But um, I would be the player that would like to probably go and play. Yeah, it certainly will be, uh, I think, an unusual feeling if we're watching tennis uh, come August, September, October, and, and there are no spectators in, in the crowd. And obviously, the French Open is also on the schedule and, and pushed back to, to late September. I, I know for you, that was a slam where you had a lot of success. Of course, the 2015 finals run, uh, and you're used to obviously playing that during June. How, how much of a difference do you think it, it will make if that tournament is happening kind of late September and, and into the fall? Uh, I think the biggest difference is the clay because, um, you know, the calendar has a flow and uh, at the end of the season or towards the uh, other half of the season, we are used to play only hard courts. So um, there, there is US Open, which is on hard court, and then you have to switch back to clay again, which uh, makes it a little difficult, but um, because there are not many tournaments to prep for it you know as you as you're used to uh, but in general there are so few tournaments that uh, um, it's the only only possibility so and it's for everyone the same as well so I guess uh, uh, I think it's better that it is happening even though it's pushed back to September and who knows maybe there is better weather I remember your French Open being freezing cold in the in the springtime so uh, hopefully it will be nicer weather in the fall well that's uh that's true and uh happy to jog your memory because uh, as we said you had such a, a great finals run in in 2015 what do you think it was about your game that maybe does lend to the clay court surface and and what made you quite comfortable there uh well you know when we grow up in Czech we grow up on all surfaces because in the uh, in the winter we play on very fast hard courts in the summer we are on clay so um I think that uh, that's why we learn to uh, adjust to all the uh, surfaces that there are besides grass we don't have many grass courts in Czech and um I um I kind of like my my game fits the clay court, even though I like to play on other surfaces too, but uh, I like to slide and use all the spins and, um, you know, with lefty, I can, um, I can use my tricks more on clay as well. Same as on grass. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I like clay and uh, French open, obviously my best result in the career. That run was so memorable, not just because it was, um, you know, the peak moment of your singles career making a Grand Slam final, which would be special for anybody, 
but just the quality of players that you beat along the way. I mean, taking out Sharapova, Muguruza. Yeah. I actually had a really tough draw, and uh, never look. I never look ahead when uh, when the draw is out. I always look just for the opponent that I have that round. And um, uh, I know Rob Stackley, uh, Canadian coach, obviously was there with me, and. Uh, and he, he, he just told me, like, it's a tough draw, <laughs> but we will go through it <laughs> step by step. And, um, yeah, I, I uh, played really well that year. And, uh, you know, everything clicked together for me. I felt well. I was healthy and uh, uh, played the best tennis of my life, probably. And, and all three of those players that I just mentioned that you beat in that tournament would win the French Open at one time or another. So not just great players on other surfaces, but on clay as well. And then Serena to take her to three sets in the final, which is more than a lot of people were able to do against her in a, in a moment like that. What were you feeling during those two weeks that, uh, that made it so special, that made everything fall into place so well for you there? Honestly, it's it's funny to look back because uh, when I arrived at this this year of French Open, I felt uh, really uh, there were new balls. They were a little heavier balls that year, and uh, I arrived and I was complaining about the balls to Rob, and I was saying I don't feel the ball. And you know, the few days before the tournament started, I I was complaining about everything. And uh, we had a, actually a practice with Jeannie Bouchard and um, Susan Langlencourt and we both played terrible and I was like oh my god and then slowly I was getting into the rhythm there and uh, played uh, one of my best friends on tour Nastya Pavushenkova in the first round which is never nice to play on a Grand Slam first round of friend but um, I survived that match was fighting through it and uh, from that point I, I really started to feel the ball exactly where I wanted and uh, yeah, playing Maria on center court was a huge challenge for me, and uh, I was pumped very to to get that win because previously we had a, a tough three setters with Maria, and I lost uh, I lost some of them, uh, and uh, so I really wanted to beat her right there, and it happened, and that boosted my confidence and uh, into the next rounds, and um, yeah, step by step, and the play, the finals was I had chance, I had two zero in the uh, third set, but then Serena stepped up the level and I didn't really do anything wrong, but but she just was better there at the end. No regrets then. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, you were one of those rare players that had so much success, not just in singles, but in doubles as well. Your doubles career was terrific, reaching number one, the Grand Slam wins that you had there. Why don't we see more players um, try to accommodate both singles and doubles and what was it for you that allowed you to have the success in, in both of those different uh, aspects of the sport? Well, I love to play doubles. And uh, playing with Bethany was uh, just like playing next to an amazing, fun person who's uh, always energetic. And um, so uh, just just one of my best friends as well. And um, uh, to it's not easy for a player to play singles and doubles because um, you play every day a match, maybe sometimes two matches a day, which is a lot, especially on clay. So that's why many people choose only singles. And uh, 
I I really so much enjoy playing doubles that I that I played always both of the competitions and uh, uh, trust me uh, that French Open there were many days that I came to the locker room and I was super exhausted but then when you see Bethany they're joking around and <laughs> everything is about mental so once the head tired with a player like and, that next to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she she pushed me to um to perform better and um to survive those two weeks and and then I was exhausted for a month. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, uh we're we're fortunate to see Bethany Maddox Sands too now on uh, this Tennis United program with one of yeah, our Canadians Patrick commentating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's great. I think we're establishing a nice Canadian connection too uh and mm-hmm. we'll get to your coach uh, Rob Steck in a moment because we've had him on this podcast as well but uh just I guess I guess Phyllis in and our listeners in on on what you've been up to I guess since you left the pro tour what what has life really been like uh since you did retire uh so I had a very nice retirement I had actually three (laughs) one with Fed Cup one uh, at home in Prague um, in front of a huge crowd, which was very nice. Uh, it was the main one. And one in Paris that uh, I had a nice farewell on the center court there. So uh, it's, been, it's been really um, nice um, goodbye. And um, ever since then, I've, I've been playing tennis. Actually, right now, today, I play tennis with, uh, with my boyfriend and... Uh, and I still play for fun. I play with my nieces who are playing tennis, but uh, uh, not not planning on coming back. I I really enjoyed my off time, and um, I don't. Most of you know that I have a baby, <laughs> so I have a baby girl Leah, which is uh, taking all my time <laughs> at night and at day. <laughs> so uh, I've been I've been on a full time job as a mom, which I love. And uh, yeah, still connected to tennis, um, in touch with uh, my tennis friends uh, on tour. And uh, I've been uh, attending um, those exhibitions matches, which are taking place now in Czech. We had um, uh, three of those now. Um, the girls play um, like, a, like a team competition uh, between each other. So it was nice to be there and to see them. And I don't miss the traveling at all, to be honest, because tennis uh, traveling is very exhausting. So I've enjoyed uh, being at home, uh, sleep in my bed every day and, uh, you know, having a nice, uh, calm life, I would say. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, for most uh, players you speak to post uh, post playing career, they do not miss the travel, and that's uh, one luxury you really feel after you get off the tour that you're not always in hotel room after hotel room. Um, it, it seems like you've taken, I guess, a nice step back from the sport while also still being involved. Do, do you ever miss, I guess, like the 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 competition of it, or, or you're okay? A little yeah. bit, of course. The uh, the tournaments are fun. They are stress as well because you want to compete, you want to do well. Uh, but uh, it's fun to be on the court, to uh, to engage with the fans, uh, to have the feeling of the win. But um, there are other things in life, and as I said, being a mom is uh, is amazing, and uh, I'm enjoying it uh, fully and not missing um, too much tennis right now but who knows you know it hasn't been that long of a time that I'm away from the tour and maybe I will miss it more in the future but uh, 
for right now I enjoy to be a spectator and uh, I was breastfeeding while watching uh, Australian Open in the TV so <laughs> <laughs> that made it very different position yeah. <laughs> multitasking I remember bottle feeding my little twins when they were born <laughs> with the Australian Open and it was perfect here in Canada because the kids would get up at all hours as you know but there exactly. would be tennis on because of the time difference so it was actually exactly. it was actually okay um, since we're a Tennis uh, Canada podcast, we have to talk about your former Canadian tennis coach that you mentioned, Rob Steckley. I spoke with him on the weekend. He wanted me to say hi, and he wanted me to say that you're the best. So oh, <laughs> He's the best, too. <laughs> what was it like partnering with someone like Rob, who is just so different from most of the serious types of coaches that you see out there on tour? See, I love that about him because uh, he makes it fun. He makes tennis fun and uh, he makes you really enjoy every day working hard out there. And uh, you still have to put the workload in, but um, he makes it different. He makes it interesting and, uh, and fun, as I said. So I love that about him and he's a super fun personality. Um, even... Uh, when we are winning, he's making me laugh. When we were losing, he was making me laugh in the in the tough situation. And uh, he also has a really good feel uh, when to push you and when not to. So uh, he really knew my personality perfectly. So um, there were times when he would come on the court and uh, would make me like make me pissed I would say <laughs> telling me how I'm slow and how I'm bad on the court but uh, he knew how to push me to get the best out of me I would say and there were f times when he would come out there and make me laugh and uh, shake the stre stress uh, away from me so um, I think it's really important from a coaching point of view to have that feel for a player because every player is different and you have to know your player and know how to exactly work with her or him. I was talking to him about the troubles I'm having with my serve right now, actually troubles with all parts of my game, but the serve in particular. And he said, ask Lucy what it was like when we used to argue about her first and second yeah. serves back in the day. <laughs> Um, yeah, we, we worked a lot on the serve, on the backhand, on the volleys. Forehand was always my, my, my strength, so not so much uh, there. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of work and you have to put in the hours. Of course, you can be talented more or less, but still you have to work and work. So, and um, yeah, I think he, he has a good eye what to, where to go with the changes as well. So if you put more hours with him, you will be good. <laughs> I'll try my best. <laughs> you, uh, you mentioned some of the great players, obviously, you faced uh, in that 2015 run at Roland Garros. And obviously, over the course of your career, you got a chance to face so many terrific players. Any players, I guess, standing out the most as like your toughest opponent? I I'm sure Serena must be up there losing that final and having other opportunities to play her. Uh, yeah, I guess who would you... Who would you view as a, sort of the toughest you ever faced? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, with Serena, I played many three serves, never beat her. Against Petra Kvitova, my fellow Czech player, I played uh, a lot of three setters, never beat her too. 
um, with Maria Sharapova. I won some, I lost some. Actually, one of the top players that I always or almost always beaten was Agnieszka Radvanska, that mm. uh, that was uh, a top ten player for a long time. But I just it was one of those players that I know knew how to play her, and for some reason it it was it was a good matchup for me. And uh, someone who I didn't like to play was Nicolescu because with the sliced forehand and that weird uh, uh, changing of the hurt game, I hated it and I always lost to her. So, so yeah, those players, of course, there there are many more, but um, I, yeah, I, I also remember when I started, I played against Mary Pierce, you know, I started in that. Uh, catch that decade of players. So I'm very thankful for how long was my career and um, um, who I could face on the court. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how different game styles sometimes match up. I, I think you would hear other players saying it was it was a nightmare for them to face Radwanska and her crafty shots, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah you I had success. Hated it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, and I hated my lefty, my lefty uh, serve, and uh, how I like I <laughs> placed it into her backhand side and made her run into her forehand. She hated it. Oh, nice! <laughs> now nice. she's expecting a baby as well. So, <laughs> oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah, new the decade of players is coming in, and uh, and uh, we are going into the coaches' <laughs> age. Well, uh, that that's a good transition because I. I'm curious, you know, you've, you've only been uh, away from the tour for about a year, but uh, in terms of new faces, I guess, that we're seeing on tour, obviously we love Bianca Andrescu here in Canada. Are there any top, top players? Yeah. Yeah. Are there any top players, maybe like Bianca or other names that, that really stand out to you that you think are probably going to be the next generation of stars? Um, yeah. I mean, there are quite a few uh, now on the tour and, um, uh, yeah, Bianca is a very talented player that um, has all all the strokes. You know, she to me she doesn't have a, a weakness in her game. She knows how to come to the net, how to slice, how to play fast. Uh, she moves well, so I think he she has a she has a great future um, if she's healthy. I know she's been struggling with the health. Um, there is Coco Gauff. Uh, a young player, really young player, who's also very talented. Uh, Ashley Barty is actually really young too, mm-hmm. that um, already reached number one ranking. So, yeah, I mean, there are, there are so many new names. I can't even keep up with all of them. <laughs> but um, it's it's great that they're, they, they're coming, um, the new generation are coming and the players are uh, very talented. Just a couple more questions for you, Lucy, before you, we let you get back to your parenting over there. But, um, you know, in terms of the direction that the WTA needs to move into, there's always room for improvement in any professional sports. And there's been a lot of talk lately about a potential merger down the road between the WTA and the ATP to get the men and the women combined and on the same page. Would you welcome a suggestion like that? And, and as a former women's tennis player, professional tennis player, what would you like to see done to make sure that the women are getting as much out of it as, as the men? Uh, that's a that's a question that contains a lot because <laughs> I know. <laughs> Can you give us a scaled down uh, version? I've been, that's okay. I've been, on the, I've been on the player council for 
multiple years and um, so I know all the issues um, uh, from a woman tennis perspective from a man tennis perspective and uh, it's uh, it seems like it's same same sport so it should be easy to unite but uh, uh, there are a lot of challenges to do that but uh, at the end of the day it would be great if that would happen it's just uh, it's just not easy because uh, there has to be a lot of compromises to 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 make and uh, as you mentioned we are we are equal on the grand slams but we are definitely not equal on the other tournaments so uh, to to make that happen it's um, it's it's a challenge and uh, i would really love to see that happening to merge those together and uh, be united and i hope i will still see that happening <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's definitely not easy to, to do yeah i think uh, we're hopeful too if it's possible and if it were to improve the game i, th I think it's something that would be fantastic um i think we alluded it alluded to it earlier but i'm curious now that you have taken a step back from the game and you're retired do you think you would ever welcome a return to the sport and in a, a coaching position perhaps um yeah i mean i'm i'm open to it i uh, cannot see myself traveling again a lot of weeks because i have the baby so that makes things uh, harder but um i definitely love the sport and uh, i think i have a lot of uh, experience through long career and uh, to pass that to someone um to share everything i've lived through i would definitely like to do maybe a few weeks uh, maybe with someone younger you know who's uh, uh who's not yet at that uh, wta level but slowly getting there i think that would be probably uh, that age that i could target the most with all my experience um definitely but Maybe my nieces. I yeah. <laughs> one is, one is uh, eleven and one is thirteen. So, but they are they are yeah working working towards it. <laughs> it's it's a long way from a child to become a pro tennis player. Absolutely, and um, I guess with you and and your partner Thomas Placanic both being former professional athletes, your uh, your daughter <laughs> will be a half tennis player, half hockey player. Is that? Right? She's, uh, she's already a handful. <laughs> Okay, okay. She's already trying to walk almost and she's very energetic, but uh yeah, we will see. I don't think hockey is uh best uh or we wouldn't we would rather see her playing tennis than hockey. Well, you can't uh, say that on a Canadian podcast. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, she will learn how to um ice skate and everything, but uh uh I think um I hope she will like tennis and we will see a lot of pressure on her. Definitely. <laughs> Seriously. Well, take your time with that one. We just want to thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast on Matchpoint Canada. And uh, I was excited. Ben was very excited this morning when we were going to be speaking with you. My six-year-old son was super excited because we're Montreal Canadian fans. Oh, in nice. <laughs> so he, he still has memories of Thomas playing for the, the Canadians and was very excited that I was going to be speaking. Yeah, yeah super long career too and yes. uh, I don't think there are many players who were with uh, one team for the entire career. It was very difficult for me to see him very briefly with the Toronto Maple Leafs before he came back to Montreal to finish off but uh, 
anyhow, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule with uh, with him and your your baby. And we wish you all the best in retirement. Still, still lots of time for you to come back. You're still very young, so who knows? Well, we will see. We will see. I think the coaching is more. Um, more of a way for me than than a professional tennis player but you never know <laughs> that's right thank Fair you enough. lucy have a good day and i hope we will see us next time when the tour is already uh fully working <laughs> yeah be wonderful we're looking forward to that there you have it our interview with former czech player lucy safarova five-time grand slam champion in doubles and french open finalist and uh yeah, I, I feel like there are elements of her that do miss the sport and do miss the competition, but she's also in a comfortable space there. And you must love like the Montreal Canadiens connection as a big Habs fan being uh, married to Thomas Blacanitz. You you know I did. And, uh, you know, for those who are going to watch this interview when we put it up on our YouTube channel, I was rocking my Montreal Canadiens shirt. And I <laughs> yep. did have to, you know, show that off at the end of the interview being the proud Habs fan that I am. Um, and that must be pretty cool too, being married to another former professional athlete who completely understands what you're going through. They both retired around the same time as well and have now clearly embraced that next stage of their lives. Uh, Lucy puts quite a bit up on her Instagram of the two of them, uh, hanging out with their kid, with their baby, and uh, and playing tennis too. And I was kind of impressed with uh, Placanic's tennis skills. He looks uh, quite comfortable on the court as well. But it is nice to see someone who just um, has made a smooth transition to that next stage of life. And yet at the same point, as you mentioned, she's still just in her early thirties. And I almost got the vibe in that conversation that we sh she was saying, Hey, who knows, maybe at some point, you know, I'd be open to coming back if I was uh, feeling healthy. And certainly I think with her uh, lefty skills and all court game uh, and double savvy, even if it was just a comeback in doubles, I think it could be very um, productive her last year on tour was 2019, but I wouldn't even really call that a year. She played maybe four or five doubles events, including beating Sharon Fishman and Gabby Dabrowski in Fed Cup play. Uh, she made a finals in Stuttgart, so was still playing great ball, and then had her uh, farewell at the French Open, uh, fittingly enough, of all places. Uh, and her last singles match, which the year was the year before in 2018, uh, actually here in Canada, in Quebec City. Yeah, that's a that's another nice Canadian connection. And yeah, it should be noted, like she has not, you're right, completely closed the door on a return. And I, I feel like she's one of a handful of athletes uh, on, on the women's side that are in that early 30s range. And you feel like they, they probably could have still some great tennis left. And I think if we were talking 10, 15 years ago, age of 31, 32 is almost like, wow, you had a terrific long career, which is true. Uh, but we see the longevity in the sport and how that's changing. And you see like the fitness of a Caroline Wojniacki and you see uh, you have memories of the way Dominika Sibulkova play and you go and check like how old are these women? And they're still like, oh, you're still early 30s. You think if they really wanted to push for a return, they could conceivably make a comeback. And I wonder maybe Safarova if she were to try and come back is kind of like returning, becoming a top 50, top 70, top five type player enough for her? Or is it really the pursuit has to be, I, I want to be at the top of the game again. So I wonder yeah. if that's part of the motivation. 
Yeah, it would depend on each player because we've seen a lot more moms come back to the tour, I would say, in the last five years than we ever saw before. And some of them, like Serena, still absolutely a top-level player. And others, maybe not what they used to be, but having some competitive moment, moments. I think of uh, Vera Zvonareva, the Russian, who peaked at yes. number two in the world and made a couple of slam finals, if memory serves correctly. And I think she's hovering inside the top 100 and, and has had trouble kind of going beyond that but still is a tricky opponent that players wouldn't want to play. Uh, we're very excited to see what Kim Kleisters can do, uh, assuming that's still uh, on track to happen when the WTA resumes play. But um, incredible, incredible that these women are able to balance uh, the home life, come back after giving birth, and just the, the physical challenges as well that, that come along with that. It's so, so impressive. And, uh, you know, the first year or two after having a kid, uh, I can only speak from the male perspective, of course, but your life is nothing like what it used to be. But then you do start to get into a, a bit of a routine. And, and for players who have a team around them and, and help at home and can manage the travel, um, no reason why if they're in their yeah, early 30s, mid 30s, they still can't come back and, and make a go of it. Yeah, certainly. And uh, great to hear the details on that run to the finals and of the French Open in 2015. And look, there's a lot of people who get to their first Grand Slam final. And if they were playing Serena Williams, just get smoked off the court. And there's almost no shame in that, especially with Serena's peak years, that she was absolutely dominating some of the Grand Slam finals ones wins that she had you know only players kind of lasting an hour on court against her she was really really close in that final actually it up goes break, three sets in the third and up a break in the third lucy safarova really gave her a long run for her money um so uh, it was interesting to hear her talk about that lefty variety and and her spin uh kind of playing up on clay but also just arriving at Roland Garros and and not feeling the best and I always find it fascinating sometimes you hear about these great tournament wins or, or deep runs at a grand slam and the player showed up and it was like you know I, I actually wasn't feeling my best at all and then just kind of hit a bit of a hot streak and, that's, uh, that's a real that's, message there for even recreational level players or, or just club tournament players. Hey, even if you're not feeling at your best, you never know what can happen. And you got to just shake mm -hmm. that off and move forward. And as Rob Steckley, her coach at the time, told her, uh, and she didn't like looking ahead in draws normally, but he kind of said to her, yeah, it's a pretty tough draw this year. Uh, and, and she got to that final. You know, sometimes players get to their one and only slam final or, or win their only slam. And you look at the draw and you say, it wasn't really the toughest field of competition in front of them. You can't say that for the players that Lucy faced in 2015. She had to go through some big-time names to get to that final. What an impressive list of, uh, of players that she vanquished. And then to put up that kind of uh, effort in the finals as well uh, to give a great uh, competitive match like that. Um, what a great run and so, so deserving for her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, an incredible tournament and incredible career, which, uh, as we said, she hasn't completely closed the door on. We'll get to some other news uh, that broke on the ATP side, and we haven't heard an announcement from the WTA, but uh, we do have a rankings change uh, for the men's players, which is now going to cycle over 18 months. So dating back 
to March 2019 until December 2020 of this year. Players will now use their top 18 results and won't have to defend points for the rest of the year. Uh, so interesting change in this sense, I think, for the top players as well. Rafael Nadal, uh, he won, of course, the French Open and U.S. Open last year. And we know those are the two Grand Slams we're hopefully getting this year. Fingers crossed. He won't have to defend those 4,000 points. Novak Djokovic, he can still keep that stranglehold on the world number one because he didn't win the U.S. Open and French Open last year. So he could still conceivably pick up points. And then really it's protection, I think, for other players who would have posted some great results like late summer into fall. We don't know their status for this year. We're not going to see any rankings, dippings. And Roger Federer also protected because he's not playing for the rest of the season. So, Mike, I think this is probably the right move with just like so much of the unknown kind of shuffling players in and a very quick condensed schedule would be a lot to ask for them to kind of be forced to defend all of their points earned from last year. Yeah, it seems like the right thing to do. It seems like the safe play. And I mean, my math sucks at the best of time, but I can kind of follow along <laughs> in this. And this makes sense. I mean, they did say you can't count the same tournament twice. Uh, so yeah. that's in there, which which obviously makes sense. And I think, yeah, it's good for the top players and, and for their fans. So their fans don't go crazy that they might lose out on a certain tournament that comes off their, their ranking points. And it's really good, I think, for, um, you know, lower ranked players who maybe had, you know, a good result um, that they don't want to see disappear because of all of this and, and perhaps won't have the chance to defend for a, throughout the rest of, of 2020. So Seems like the smart thing to do. I can't see any downside to it, but uh, feel free to let us know if you do see something that stands out to you in a, in a less than stellar way there. But otherwise, it seems to me like the, the right play to, to make. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I uh, should just note, we saw an interesting piece of news in regards to Rafael Nadal because he's committed to playing the Madrid Open. And I think that's raised some eyebrows that is he only sticking to the clay court season? Will he miss the U.S. Open this year? And um, how would that change the complexion of the tournament? Is Djokovic also going to go there? Is he going to skip out on it? Uh, we know Roger Federer is done for the rest of the year. And I think everybody is wondering which Grand Slams will Djokovic and Nadal elect to play or elect to skip? I, I still feel um, very much that the U.S. Open is, is hit or miss, is in jeopardy. Yeah. It's, it's coming up quick. Things are still not looking good in the United States, and uh, we're seeing some of the uh, you know negative impact of players traveling uh, country to country just in recent weeks between some exhibition tournaments and things of that nature. Uh, I just don't have a confident feeling. If I'm a player who's based in Europe, do I really want to be going to New York City right now? Probably not. If there wasn't the turnaround to then come back and switch to clay and have the French Open coming shortly thereafter, you know, that might push me to go more if I was based in Europe. But otherwise, you know, a guy like Rafa, it's big picture. And why would you risk the health and uh, even the wear and tear on the body and the, the time, uh, I was going to say the time travel, the, uh, the time change, the time zone change. Uh, and for him, it's always going to be Roland Garros. That's the most important. And uh, to consider that he could add to his incredible uh, haul of Roland Garros titles already, I, I would think that that's his his main focus and that he would prioritize that of course uh, over anything else. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. And certainly, uh, I, I think the U.S. Open is still definitely a big question mark. And we should mention Francis Tiafo, latest player to test positive for COVID-19, just playing an exhibition in Atlanta because we still have so many hot spots throughout the states where this virus is kind of looming uh, that we are still so far from in the clear, I think, for a lot of these events. And the ITF, I will also just mention, adjusted their schedule, scrapping a bunch of August tournaments. So that's a bit of a loss for lower-ranked players who want to get back on the circuit and play ITF events. So unfortunate that that's the case. Yeah, those are the ones who need it the most. They need those points. They need that money the most. It's going to be incredibly difficult for them to get through this period of time financially. So um, thoughts go out to them. Thoughts go out to Francis Tiafo and anyone else who's tested positive for, for COVID-19. Uh, sounds like Novak and his wife are now um, free of it. Uh, last I heard that they've gotten over it. So that's good as well. And uh, I don't recall anyone being called a potato or a donut this week. So it sounds like maybe the drama levels have uh, reduced a little bit on tennis Twitter as well in, in some ways. <laughs> you never you never know when the next controversy is going to pop up, though. Uh, true. You true. never know which day you log on and you're going to see something uh, outrageous. So we'll keep our eye on it. Uh, we thank Lucy Safarova, our guest this week, and thank all of our guests over the past uh, few weeks who have just been fantastic and would remind everybody, uh, if you haven't had a chance, uh, please listen back to a few of our latest podcasts. We had a great interview with Milos Raonic, Patrick Maradoglu, coach of Serena Williams, and also Jeannie Bouchard and uh, Lucy Safarova this week. This is quite the hot streak, I would say. Yeah, I really hope that when professional tennis does resume, it doesn't mean that things are going to change for us on the podcast, that that (laughs) things continue the way they've been going. And and also, don't forget, we are up on YouTube. So if you don't mind seeing our two uh, ugly mugs, uh, uh, then go ahead and and check us out there for our uh, our live video um, uh, interviews with those players that Ben just uh, talked about as well. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Matchpoint Canada. We'll talk to you next time. Right.